Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, welcome back to the afternoon section here on Ausbeers and we kick off with the call as we always do midday Eastern Daylight Time. Uh, 10 stocks that you suggested, I put it to two experts for their uh, analysis. I had in a stock of the day and we do that all in a fast and furious 60 minutes. Uh, let's welcome the panel for today because these two blokes always have a lot to say and it's always good so we need to leave plenty of time. Uh, Chris Conway from Marcus today. Uh, Chris, good to see you. Thanks, Goshy. Good to see you. And Scott Phillips from Motley Fool. How are you, sir? Goshy, g'day. I'm well. I'm glad you, after you said we've got a lot to say, you actually also said it was valuable, mate, because I was worried where that was going to go. Yes, from there, but it we'll is. But we'll try and fill the 60 minutes. It is always valuable. And a lot <laughs> happening uh, today as well. Um, in the first half of, uh, of the call, we're going to be taking... A look at NRW, uh, Top Shelf International, Cobalt Blue, Blue Steel and Qantas. Um, but before we get into it, uh, stock of the day, a, a huge one today, Macquarie Group flagging higher expenses in their quarterly report to support growth and investment as it fights off greater competition in the space. The bank says an improvement in overall market conditions contributed to a record quarter of profits. However, there was no specific guidance or numbers given for that record. Going forward, a boom in commodities and trading incomes are not deterring management's conservative approach. Chief Executive says the group remains liquid and well-funded for the medium term. Uh, boy, the market liked it. Back up through $200 a share uh, today. Eight bucks, uh, 4.5%. Uh, Scott Phillips from uh, Motley Fool, what did you think of the update? Uh, well, it didn't have a whole lot of detail in it, but the market really liked it. I was going to say the same thing, Koshi. Operational updates is exactly what you think it would. Very light on detail. Lots of uh, motherhood statements telling us how things are going. I think this is the value, mate, of having a business that the market loves and trusts. And when you see a business like Macquarie, that's been a real favourite of investors and justifiably for a very long time, they come and say, look, record quarter, things are good, we're investing for growth. The market's inclined to take that on faith. And I think that is a real difference when you compare that with other businesses on the ASX right now, where even great news is still taken with a grain of salt. When you have that sort of track record, you've got that reputation, you really can do well on it. And as you say, shares up almost 5% at the moment. On the back of that reasonably light detail, basically a record quarter, tick, uh, expecting good growth, tick, investing for growth, tick. Uh, even as you say, the competition concerns didn't seem to sway the market, and probably justifiably so. These shares have been all over the place. You've got to look at the most recent dip you saw there. Um, it's, been a, it's been a rocky old uh, last couple of months for Macquarie, but it does seem like they're back on track or maybe just confirming to the market that they are on track. Maybe that's the better way to put it. Uh, and the shares have bolted today. Yeah. Um, would you still be buying them at le these levels? And, and considering like ANZ's update, was underwhelming. Westpac was the same. Combank's out tomorrow. We've got Matt Common on uh, uh, on the program tomorrow. Um, 
it's sort of a bit of a standup out amongst its peers so far. And I think that's why it's a buy for a lot of people, Kosh. You're looking around saying, well, if I want to be in financial services, I want to be big, I want to be blue chip, what do I do? Uh, the other banks haven't exactly covered themselves in glory. CBA's update will be fascinating to see how well they're going tomorrow. I think I think it is a buy on, the, on, a, on a bit of faith. I, I mentioned that before. You've got some of the smartest people in the country, all they're trying to make money for themselves and money for, the, for shareholders, going pretty much wherever they want to go. Remember the Macquarie model, as we famously talked about it 15 years ago, almost doesn't bear any resemblance to the Macquarie of today. And probably today's Macquarie won't bear any resemblance to the Macquarie of 10 or 15 years time because they literally are going anywhere. They're finding opportunity to put capital to work, theirs or other people's, and make money from that for themselves and shareholders. That is a very, very potent mix. And as long as they can keep their noses clean regulatorily, as long as they don't make too many big missteps, they make small bets and then expand them. Very, very hard to bet against Macquarie. They're not cheap, it's 20 times earnings, but they're not super expensive either for what is obviously an investment bank, very different to the retail mm. banks that we know. I think it is a buy still. 2.6% um, yield helps as well. At some point, you're probably going to have to pull away from that, but it might be another 10 or 20% higher from here. Yeah. Um, Chris, it's sort of a, a bank slash private equity business, is it? Or a private equity dressed up as a bank. Um, what do you think of the update? Uh, did you come out of Macquarie? Uh, no, I didn't come out of Macquarie. Koshy, Henry did. Um, but did Henry was, did, didn't he? Uh, Henry yeah. was there for seven years. We were actually talking about Macquarie in our morning meeting this morning, and uh, one of the questions posed, uh, we recorded as a podcast, was, uh, you know, what is the stock that you would buy for your grandchildren? And four out of six of us said Macquarie. So it's one we've liked mm -hmm. at Marcus today for quite some time. Uh, I wrote it up as a, a buy uh, for 2021, so in the year obviously just gone. And the reasons why I liked it at the time were that the conditions for them were perfect. So money was cheap and still is cheap. There was a lot of distressed assets out there and they are famous for picking up assets on the cheap and either then managing them and earning a clip uh, or spitting them out and making a profit out of them. And there was a global economic recovery on the cards at the time, which we're still going through now. So the conditions were perfect. And here we are 12 months later, a little bit longer than 12 months later, and they're uh, posting uh, a record result. Uh, again, a lot on detail. Agree with what Scott said. They are famous, Macquarie, for under-promising and over-delivering. So I think that lends to uh, what Scott was talking about with regards to credibility. When they say something like this, they don't say it often, so it does carry weight. Uh, and we don't even know what the record was. Was it record revenue? Was it record profit? Uh, undoubtedly, we'll find out in due course. But they wouldn't say something like that unless it was uh, significant. Uh, Shamira is a fantastic operator, uh, as was Nicholas Moore before her. So, uh, again, echoing everything that Scott said, the smartest guys in the room, they know how to make money. They have $750 billion worth of assets under management now. It was $500 billion not so long ago. So they continue to grow very aggressively. The formula is perfect. Uh, and even that part of the business that underperformed uh, in the most recent quarter, they had the capital markets facing business, which is only 25% of their revenue these days or 25% of their business. That was the thing that really picked up. So it seems that regardless of the market conditions, these guys are making money. So it's absolutely a buy for uh, us here at Marcus today as well. Okay. All right. Let's get into the stocks that you want us to have a look at. And Ben, uh, Chris wants a view on NRW Holdings. Uh, Ben says, seems to have strong fundamentals a great and a great dividend, but the stock is going sideways. Um, it's a big contracting business, second only to CIMIC uh, in the Australian market um, into contract services in resources and infrastructure. 
what do you reckon of NRW and is it being left behind? I think it is a little bit koshy. So, uh, again, Ben is 100% right. The share price has been going sideways for the best part of the last eight months. And then if you zoom out to three years, it's, it's, it hasn't changed much since in the, in the three-year period as well. does have a fantastic dividend, 6.5%, grossed up 9.3 on the numbers that I'm looking at. So if you're willing to hold this stock for the dividend and earn the clip, then and, and you know what the purpose is in your portfolio, may be worth holding. Uh, should be doing better probably because of its exposure to iron ore. Uh, and as Scott and I spoke about last time, I think when we talk about FMG, it seems we both believe in the long-term uh, iron ore story. So you could potentially hold this one. The only problem that I have with it, uh, one of my mentors back in the day uh, who was a, a fund manager said to me, why would you own the company that makes the picks and shovels when you can have direct exposure to the asset? So you know, if you're buying this one because it has significant exposure to iron ore, why wouldn't you just buy a Fortescue or something like that and remove a layer of risk? So uh, that's the only problem that I have with it is that uh, I think if you're going to want that exposure, you can do better elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, Scott? There's a really hard one for me, Koshi, because on the numbers, it looks really good value. It's running about yeah. 8.6 times earnings on the numbers I've got in front of me here. And so you look at that and say, uh, you know, if you bought a basket of businesses trading for less than 10 times earnings that had decent fundamental underlying businesses, you'd probably back yourself to do reasonably well. We'll go through a couple of those today. Actually, it's going to be a fun hour because there's quite a few businesses in that basket right now of the market seems to, if not hate, certainly intensely dislike or at least aren't prepared to pay up for some of these companies. Contrast that with Macquarie at 20 times earnings, for example. On the other hand, this is a contract business. Uh, and Chris already mentioned the, the kind of the business that it's in, which is great. This, I mean, contract services used to be the absolute bee's knees. During the mining boom of the kind of 20, 2009, 10, 11, these were the businesses you want to own. Monodelphus famously and plenty of others. Now, when you're moving across then into more civil construction, other things, the questions around, is there enough upside potential, given there are so many of these businesses doing this now? Ironically, they were the architects of their own downfall to some degree, because there's so many different businesses that will do your bidding, uh, that pricing and margins remain reasonably depressed. And that's the key challenge. Yes, you're in the space. Yes, you're doing the work. But can you do it at a reasonable margin? Services businesses tend to be pretty ordinary. I have to say, I thought at the time, I still think now, that 29-10-11 period was probably the exception that proves the rule rather than something we should look back at and say, when it gets back to there, we'll all make a fortune. Because there was a squeeze for demand. It was absolutely a seller's market and they made a fortune. And then, of course, you remember when the mining boom crashed, every miner and his dog was really re uh, negotiating those contracts saying, well, look, you took us out us over a barrel a year ago. Now, guess what? The worms turn. We're going to renegotiate those contracts. So when the whip hand is with the suppliers and, and uh, Chris mentioned Fortescue, there's plenty of others besides, I don't know you can expect particularly wonderful future from these businesses. Solid, yes, in demand, kind of. Um, better better than most, yes, absolutely all true. Does that give you market-beating performance? I'm not sure that it does. And unless you think there is a reason for a supply squeeze at some point or a massive demand jump, and I don't really see why. Long-term bullishness, yes. Do I see conditions where these guys might make a fortune? Probably not. So I'd probably give it a miss, even though at eight and a half times earnings, it's very, yeah. very hard to do. Yeah. It's a, it is a conundrum for investors, is it? When it looks really cheap, you go, oh, good yeah. dividend. Uh, but the market's usually exactly. right, isn't it? <laughs> There's a reason why it's cheap. All right, Emily wants a view, um, Scott, on Top Shelf International, the uh, based in Melbourne, um, marketer and producer of uh, spirits, including uh, NED whiskey, grain shaker, vodka. They did a raise in October, didn't they, to... Uh, start an agave distillery. I remember that because my son married 
uh, are Mexicans, so we've all had to become tequila experts as a result of it. And uh, I think it's the first one in Australia. I think it is too, mate. I'm never sure whether to eat the worm or not, mate, but I'll yeah. leave that for the experts. <laughs> it's, it's, a really, it's a really tough space. I, look, I like the, the liquor business. I used to work for Diageo many years ago, so I kind of have a background in it. Um, and like craft brewery, craft distilling has really become a massive thing right around the world. People are looking for the new thing, the extra thing, the different thing, and that's, that's going gangbusters. And so they're in the right space. The challenge, I think, for Top Shelf right now is they're still really small, $100 million or so of market cap. Uh, they've, they've raised some money recently, as you said, trying to add another leg to their business, and that's really attractive. They also, though, most of their business at the moment is made up of contract distilling. And that can be wonderful because it adds volume to an operation, which is great, right? If you're starting up a small distillery, you've got X amount of volume, but you've got a, a facility that can do you know, much, much more than that. What do you do? Well, you effectively want to do stuff for other people so you can actually help fractionalize your costs. It's a smart strategy to grow. While you're growing, if you can't justify the capex, it's a great way to kind of cover those costs. On the flip side of that, if you can't just you know, create enough demand for your own products, you're absolutely at the whim of those people. We talked about Good Drinks Australia, the old Gage Roads Brewing a couple of years, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, I yeah. own shares for, for full disclosure. And there, their problem was exactly the contract brewing went away or started to go away. And they've spent the last three or four years trying to fill that hole. And so it's a great thing to help you grow. It can be its own. You can be creating your own problem future times. It's also still delivering loss after loss on an operating cash flow level. Um, total cash has grown, of course, because of that financing, $40 million of financing in the last quarter. So that's a positive. It gives them much more headroom, much more room to go. But they're burning about $5 million a quarter on average. So that's a couple of years, which should be enough in theory if they can get that growth. And the growth is really good. They're contracting more volume. They're producing more volume of their own. And as you say, they're trying to add that agave distillery to their, to their operations as well. I like it. I want them to succeed, probably because I, I like a tipple and I like the category. Um, I think at the moment, though, you, you are, okay. it's a pretty big bet, right? It's a small company delivering losses, hoping at some point to turn that corner and start delivering profits. I hope they do. I'd love to see more Australian craft distilling being done, whiskey, vodka, tequila, or others. But right now, there's just not enough to recommend an yep. investment. Is that the difference between them and, say, Lark, which is the other whiskey distiller in um, Tasmania? who um, distill their own whiskey but put it away and it rises in value? They haven't contracted, they, they've just done their own? It's a tough category in general, Koshi, because you're actually putting stuff away by definition. Right? You're making it and then you're sitting on it for years. Yeah. If, you, if you had designed a business model, one that takes a lot of capital to start and you don't make a sale for five, six, seven, eight, ten years, yeah. is a really, yeah. it's a terrible business model until you manage to turn that corner and really justify the value. It's the same with wine, by the way, and Treasury have done a great job, I own Treasury shares, done a great job with their super premium Penfolds ranges where they've said, yep, we've got to put it away for years, but we can sell it for $700 a bottle. That's a really good business. Um, these guys have the potential to do that. Lark already, as you say, is doing that. You've just got to get over that hump of oh, yeah. really capital intensive, really a big struggle to get going. Once you get there though and start to deliver, that can be a, a real cash mm. machine. The problem is you can't know if they're going to get there or how long it's going to take and how much you should pay for those shares. Yeah. That's three uncertainties that'll keep me away. Yeah. Um, Chris? I'm glad Scott mentioned uh, the one we talked about a couple of week, uh, weeks ago, Gage Road, because, uh, again, it's very, very competitive space. Most of, yeah. most of the competition is from imported products. Uh, now, I didn't rush out and buy their uh, Ned Whiskey or their vodka last night, but I looked at the price point. It's $60 per bottle. So they're not competing on price. They're definitely competing on quality. And I would submit that that's a, that's a pretty tough road ahead. Uh, they probably need 
uh, and a, a famous iconic Australian, much in the way that you know George Clooney had his uh, his uh, alcohol. Tequila. Ryan Reynolds has got one. Matthew McConaughey. Yep. Uh, and Koshi, I might nominate you as the famous Australian who could promote this product. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm more, <laughs> I'm more a West End beer man, I think. But uh, fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, they, they, do have, they do have very good growth, as, as Scott said. They're the number one uh, growth uh, in both of their spaces, in vodka and whiskey. But again, can't get away from the fact that it's a highly yeah. competitive space. They don't have scale yet. Um, they have some exciting things, but I think they need a shot in the arm. And until I see that, and until I see the share price start moving in the right direction, it is in a downtrend since it listed last year. Uh, this one would be an avoid for me. But like Scott, uh, love an Australian company and certainly yep. hope that they do succeed. Yep, too right. All right. Um, uh, Chris Matt wants a view on Cobalt Blue Holdings. He says uh, uh, Cobalt being pretty integral in the EV space. These guys being involved in the Broken Hill Cobalt uh, project. Uh, of course, it's a strategic metal for uh, for lithium-ion batteries. Um, what do you think of Cobalt Blue? Share price is certainly starting to move in the right direction. There's some activity and the share price uh, is picking up. They went through their pilot plan operations and they sent some samples uh, off to some potential customers. And the feedback that they have got so far is that the samples are quite good and they're now moving to the... Uh, the next stage, the demonstration plant, where they'll try and produce it at a li little bit more scale. I think it's up to 100 kilograms. Uh, and again, we'll send it out to uh, potential customers. So it seems like an exciting opportunity. It seems like they're progressing nicely from uh, through that development stage. Uh, there is one uh, concern, however, and that's that uh, whilst cobalt is definitely critical for EV uh, batteries at the moment, there are a whole host of companies that are really trying to decrease their dependency on cobalt because of uh, some issues with it being mined out of the Congo and obviously yeah. uh, the, the human impact that it has in regions like that. So GM uh, has committed to reducing their cobalt uh, dependence by 70%. Uh, and I think it's Tesla is now trying to develop a battery that doesn't use any cobalt at all. So. Undoubtedly, cobalt will still be used and still be demanded at a pretty high clip as the take-up of EVs goes up. But it could be that at a certain point in time, demand mm. drops off significantly because uh, these companies just won't require it anymore for the batteries that they're using for their for their cars and for other products. So uh, exciting now, but uh, a risk on the horizon. And that would probably prevent me from uh, doing anything other than trading this stock, trading it on the price rather than investing in it for the long term. Yeah, uh, Scott, you can't help but feel with the lithium mania and EV mania at the moment that the market's looking around. What has a moved? Oh, cobalt, mm -hmm. in batteries, lithium ion batteries. Yeah, let's get into that next. <laughs> yeah, and it makes a whole lot of sense, right? You should be looking around saying, hey, where is the next opportunity? Yep. We see that with property, we see that with shares all the time. What's been unloved, what's been missed, what could we jump onto? Chris has done a wonderful job of explaining both the business and the risks. I was gonna say the same thing. Uh, Tesla and Panasonic are actively looking to develop a cobalt-free battery as a as a business line, and apparently they can not only are they a better human rights-wise, but they can actually be better chemically. Now I'm no chemical engineer, so I'll leave that to the experts. But uh, Tesla and Panasonic looking at that for both of those reasons. If you're in cobalt, that's you know it depends on the, the way you want to look at it, right? On one hand, you say, hang on, that's a risk. On the other hand, you say, well, hang on, if, if DRC is the issue, the Republic of Congo is an issue, and we can produce effectively slavery or cruelty-free cobalt, deliver it to the market in a way they can be proud of using our product rather than somebody else's, you might see that as an opportunity. 
I do think that while people do look to cobalt say is it the next lithium, I would probably take the other way. And you, you know my, my views on this, Koshi, but um, I, I've done this numbers ages ago. I said this a couple of weeks ago. Oil over the last century about doubled-ish in real terms, despite the volume going up, I don't know, a million fold uh, in terms of barrels of oil a day or a week or a year. And the reality is you simply find more if you need more. And the price tends to fluctuate around the cost of extraction, give or take, unless there's a short-term demand boom or supply squeeze or both. And there may well be one, by the way. Chris talks about trading. There may well be an opportunity to do exactly that. But if you think long-term and think, well, there won't be more cobalt found. Remember, peak oil in the 70s, same problem. We find ways of developing new uh, fields, whether they're gas fields, oil fields, or whether they are new mines for precious metals that are required or, or operational metals that are required for things like batteries. So you know, will, do, do I expect a lot more EVs in the future? Yes. Is there a chance cobalt's part of that? Maybe, maybe not. As Chris has said, that uh, cobalt-free battery is the big question. Even then, though, you've got to ask yourself, as I say regularly, can they get it out of the ground? At what cost? What price are they going to sell it for? What margins are left for the, for the producers? At the moment, there's question marks on all of those. So you literally are taking a really, really big leap in the unknown saying, well, possibly, maybe, I don't know. But if it does, then I might make some money. Um, that's understandable. But it's very, very rarely a good investment strategy, unfortunately. Okay. All right. Uh, Megan wants a view, Scott, on Blue Scope Steel, the, uh, the steel producer spun out of BHP uh, 20 years ago this year, would you believe? Uh, it's probably best known for its colour bond range of steel, which most Aussie households have, but they sell it into Asia and, and the US as well. Uh, Scott, what do you think of Blue Scope? And construction has been a real... Oh, sorry. sorry. Construction has been a really, really good part of their, their growth story, which is fantastic. Oh, we just just lost Scott there. We'll see if we can get him to redial back in. Uh, Chris, uh, what's your view on Blue Scott? Uh, I quite like this one, Koshi. Uh, I was fortunate enough to spend some time with a friend of mine who works for a company that is in the Blue Scope Steel group uh, at Christmas, and he was telling me that they cannot manufacture product fast enough. There is literally no inventory. Uh, it is uh, rolled off the the the, the mill and and out the door on the truck. So. Uh, demand is ridiculously high. Steel spreads are strong uh, and continue to be strong. There's no scrap available at the moment as well. That's another message that was passed to me. Uh, and of course, very high demand. So I quite like Blue Scope. The only problem is last time out, they had the, the, they had the holy trinity, if you will, in terms of their results. They had a big beat. They had a special dividend and a share buyback announced at the same time. And they had a guidance upgrade as well. So like I said, it was the holy trinity in terms of coming out of their results. <laughs> They might struggle to cycle that. Uh, that's a problem. So the results are due, obviously, uh, not too long. Uh, I think I have a date here for you. Yeah, the 21st of Feb, they're due out. So there might be some incredibly high expectations built into the current reporting period. And if they fail to meet those, as we all know, uh, share prices generally only headed in one direction if, uh, if expectations are not met. So I really, really like the company. I would like the risk of reporting season to pass. And if the results look good and the financials are sound, then this is one that I'd look to add to the portfolio. Okay, so hold off uh, at the moment until after the results come out. Correct, yes. Yeah, okay. All right, while we get... Uh, ah, Scott's back again. Uh, there you go, mate. Sorry about that glitch. Uh, Blue Scope still? 
Apologies, guys. might have been mine. I did catch what Chris said. I think he's tailed, covered it really, really nicely because the growth of the earnings of this business look phenomenal. If you look back, other than I think it was 2021, fiscal 2021, uh, 2020, sorry, the numbers have been really, really strong right through that period. Really nice growth, trading at five times earnings according to the numbers I've got here, which again, we talked about businesses that are trading too cheaply and you think, wow, like what are you, what are you waiting for? The answer to Chris's point might well be whether or not it is repeatable. While ever they've got that lovely situation of being able to literally put demand straight onto a truck as it comes off the, off, the, uh, off the machinery, that's exactly what you want. You want that sort of business. Can it, be can it be continued? Is it consistent demand? Is it consistent supply? I, I don't know. It's, it's a really tough one. You know, I generally don't love commodity players. I generally don't love steelmakers. Now, they tend not to be great investments, particularly when they're smaller businesses. And while Bluescope is big in an Australian context, it's pretty small in a global context. Um, that said, at five times earnings, a little bit hard to go past. Um, it, it's, only, it's only my general concern about business models of these sort of companies that makes me wonder whether this might be the best of times. Uh, and obviously, when you get these sort of you know, growth stories and these sort of PEs, the market's assuming the same thing. Uh, I think Chris is right. I think it's worth waiting to see what happens next. If you are ready to diversify portfolio, I can absolutely see you buying something like this again. As I said, if you were to buy half a dozen, a dozen businesses with these sort of characteristics, I'm pretty sure you'd come out pretty well with single-digit PEs and this one almost you know, half of that up to five times earnings or so. So um, I think it's one, if it was any other business, I'd probably snap it straight up uh, because I know what the, the steel industry can be like it can be really cyclical. You might just be buying at exactly the wrong time before a downturn. So waiting for the next earnings makes sense to me too. Okay. All right. So um, if the result's good, would you buy it like Chris or still steer clear because of the business model? I think, I think if the results were good and the PE stays low, you're a pretty good chance. I will say, right. as I always do, buy this part of diversified portfolio. I'm not saying buy this one stock because it's going right. to necessarily definitely go up. I'm yep. just saying if you bought a, bought a quality business with a really good you know, the best brand you're going to find is steelmaking, which is not easy to do. Um, yeah. I think if you can buy it this cheaply and if the results are pretty good, you're, you're a good chance of beating the market. But um, again, anything could happen next. So as long as you're diversified, as always, uh, adding yeah. it to a diversified portfolio, I think I probably would, yeah. Okay. Um, Scott, Danny wants a view on, on Qantas, uh, uh, the, uh, the Australian airline, obviously got to benefit from the opening up of international borders by how much? That is the question at the moment. I was putting that to Dan T and uh, the tourism minister jumping for joy on Sunrise this morning. I said, mate, to get overseas tourists here, we're a long way from anywhere. They, they plan these sort of trips a year out and we've told them for two years, we're a fortress, no one's coming in. It's gonna take a while to change. And, <laughs> and another campaign like, where the bloody hell are you? It's a quick one, isn't it? Two weeks notice to start getting planes and people back in the air and, yeah. and across the Pacific and the Atlantic and everywhere else, the Indian. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a big, big change. A very welcome change, of course. Yep. Um, my kingdom for a crystal ball, because if I'd known the announcement was coming yesterday, I would have bought it on Friday. Such was the price of it <laughs> yesterday of plenty of these companies. And, and the question, I suppose, is where to next? Because to some degree, Qantas shares have held up really, really, really well. Considering what Qantas has been through over the last couple of years, it is very much a case of the market taking, as it should, a very significant long-term look forward and saying, well, we know now is really tough, but we expect that in future, if and when things go back to normal, Qantas is still worth X dollars a share at the moment, $5.50 or so. So yes, there was a big jump yesterday, but in the overall context of where it already was, it wasn't like it you know, it went from the, the bargain basement all of a sudden overpriced. It was pretty, I will say expensive actually in, in relative historical terms yep. because it's already factored a lot of that in. In fact, I looked at the long-term price chart, the current share price for Qantas is the same as it was in both 2017 and 2007 
and also 1999. And wow. so you kind of take that to some wow. degree and remind yourself this is a very cyclical business. Um, I think they knocked back a takeover offer around the same price. Might have been six dollars, uh, maybe 15 years ago. You might remember that one. Um, it, it was just it was one of those situations where you think, yeah, good business. Yes, things are going to improve, but is it ever going to really be able to, to, to break away from its, its, its industry? We talked about Blue Scope being a tough industry. Airlines are, are, are triply tough. The fact that I've said before many times, I think Alan Joyce has done a spectacular job at Qantas, just keeping it where it is. You know, where every other airline around the world has been bankrupt two or three or four times. Uh, Virgin's gone into administration and, and got back out again. And, and Qantas has managed to survive and, and relatively thrive. So massive, massive props to, to the team at Qantas for doing exactly that. Does it make it a great investment? I don't think it does. I don't know that we can change the fundamentals of the industry, which is generally plagued by overcapacity and really, really cutthroat pricing. Qantas has some of the better pricing in the industry because of its safety record. That massive brand is just such a great brand. We all love it. Um, but as a business, I'm just not entirely sure that you want to be buying shares now. If it was to fall again, maybe they're the times you want to be opportunistic and maybe try a cyclical play. Now is not that time, I don't yeah. think. Chris, what do you think of Qantas? Warren Buffett always famously said avoid airlines and then bought into one and, and he proved himself right originally. <laughs> yeah, I think his comment was, how do you make a millionaire? You start with a billionaire and buy an airline. So uh, <laughs> it shows what he thinks about airlines. But uh, again, I would echo a lot, of, a lot of what Scott said. I think this is a trading stock. I think the sentiment is good right now, obviously, with the borders reopening announcement. The worry is the when and the how. And uh, as you were mentioning, uh, you know, people plan the holidays a long time out. Uh, and the other the other thing that could be a headwind uh, is oil going to $100 a barrel. Uh, Qantas can hedge about two thirds of that. Uh, but ultimately, that will hurt uh, their bottom line uh, with higher oil prices. So there's probably just as many headwinds and just as much uncertainty as there, as there is positive sentiment. Can I invest in that? No, the story isn't clear enough, but I could probably trade it from a sentiment perspective. So yeah. nothing more than a hold for me for a long-term portfolio, but I might try and nibble at it uh, and trade it in the short term. Uh, that's a, a really good point on the oil price too. I remember Alan Joyce telling me uh, a while ago, just makes up 70% of their costs sometimes, yeah. 80%, it's extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, something that's completely out of their hands, uncontrollable cost. All right, let's recap the uh, first five stocks. Stock of the day, Macquarie Group, uh, uh, after that uh, good announcement and uh, good reaction on the share price this morning. Uh, a yes from both Chris and Scott. NRW, a hold from Chris, a no from Scott. Top Shelf, a no from both. Colby, a no from both. Blue Scope has intrigued them, uh, if I can put it that way. Um, uh, going well, uh, Chris Conway did some excellent research at a Christmas party with a mate who works from Blue Steel. Uh, you've got to get your information from all over the place, saying it's going gangbusters. Uh, both Scott and Chris like it, but uh, Scott as part of a diverse portfolio, but wait until after the results come out at the end of the month to uh, just see whether it stacks up or not. And uh, Qantas and O from Scott, um, and a hold, if not a, a trading sort of stock in terms of Qantas. Uh, here on the call, we've been following our own fantasy portfolio since the 1st of July last year. Let's see how it's performing. Up 1.5% for the week, uh, down 5% for the month since July 1 last financial year, up 3.75% and since its inception 
uh, just under 40%. And I've been explaining that um, uh, over at the end of uh, the month, from the 1st of March, we'll be launching a brand new uh, fantasy portfolio. It's a live fund, a high conviction fund, uh, with a much smaller basket of stocks. And the way it'll work is, we'll keep doing the 10 stocks every day and stock of the day. Uh, our guests will give an opinion, buy, hold or sell. That's the first filter, if you like. If stocks get a unanimous buy or sell recommendation, they then go through to the investment committee, which will meet monthly. That committee will decide whether to add or remove stocks from the fund. And they'll take into account things like uh, the weighting of the fund and the changing weightings. Now, the whole point of this is to give you more insights into how the experts think. So uh, there'll be an extra edition of the call every month where we'll take you inside the investment committee's meeting as they look at all the stocks that you've said, our expert panel have said either buy or sell for the, uh, for the fantasy portfolio. If the committee needs more information, we'll uh, hook in the chief executive of some of the stocks that they're talking about to answer their questions. So keep sending the requests. The current portfolio will stay as it is and then we'll unveil the initial, the next fund on the, uh, the 1st of March. But it, it's all about understanding investment strategy and process, which I love picking the brains of our experts every day here on the call, because that's such a, a massive part of, uh, of investing. At CMC, we've been in the game for a while, and although a lot of things have changed, our mentality hasn't. We aim to give experienced traders the best trading experience, like our expert platform with its second-to-none trading tools, plus our pricing is completely transparent. That's why people who've been trading for a long time stay with us for a long time. So if you're serious about trading, switch to the market leader trusted for over 30 years. Trade CFDs your way at cmcmarkets.com. You don't own underlying assets. Consider relevant PDS and TMD or information memorandum with CMC Pro accounts at our website. Uh, in this half hour of the call, we'll be covering Polynovo, Goodman Group, My State, Hyperion Metals, and LaVisa. Uh, now, Chris, Irvin wants a view on Polynovo. Um, quite a long question here. We said it through to you. Um, Irvin says, um, I've, I bought into it some time ago, went against it, one of his rules. One of his rules is he never buys a one product company. He doesn't have any medical training, but he loves Polynovo for two things about the business. Sales are not subject to the economic situation because burn victims uh, need to be treated without delay. It has a good moat because um, Dr. Uh, would spray on skin. Polynovo is a spray on skin for uh, uh, burn victims uh, developed by Fiona Wood. Um, and there are no similar products available. Uh, in early January 22, the company released what Irvin thought was a good report. Share price went up for two days and now has continued down. Why? And is it good buying? First of all, I would say to Urban, I agree with him 100% that this is a fantastic company doing fantastic things for people going through very trying circumstances, burn victims. Uh, it's horrible. Uh, and this technology is fantastic. Uh, putting that to one side, the problem that uh, Polynova has faced is a, a problem similar to Nanosonics. Now, Nanosonics is down significantly today, but Nanosonics is uh, a company that makes sterilization technology. So they have a product and they need to take that product into hospitals and other medical institutions and show their wares. 
and the hospitals hopefully will like them and then uh, include them uh, in their suite of products that they use to treat uh, their patients. They have struggled to do that, both Nan and Polynovo, through uh, COVID lockdowns, COVID restrictions. So Polynovo has actually spent some money on uh, improving their sales force in the US. They've also spent some more money on research and development and product uh, product placement, but they haven't been able to get that penetration simply because they haven't been able to get through the doors of some of these hospitals because COVID rules dictate that they can't. So uh, that is a transitory thing. Sorry, I, sh I shouldn't use that word. That is hopefully something that will pass. Uh, and again, you pivot back to the, this is a wonderful technology uh, and it's helping people and there are not a lot of substitutes or replacements. So right now, I probably wouldn't buy it just because the results will, will, will probably be a challenge from those conditions that I was just talking about. But if they manage to, or if and when they manage to come out the other side of this, uh, and both their results and their share price looks to improve, then I don't see any reason why you wouldn't want to be buying this stock. Okay, so certainly not uh, before their results come out because they won't be so good. All right, um, keep it so, on, yeah. keep it on your watch list, um, Scott. This is a Novo, uh, their product Novo Sorb, isn't it? And it was developed by Fiona Woods. Um, as a result of the Bali bombings to treat uh, mm -hmm. burn victims that came down to Perth, where she's based. Um, she's an extraordinary lady. An amazing lady, mate, and a wonderful product, as, as Chris already mentioned. Like, these are one of those businesses you just hope do incredibly well, regardless of the financial outcomes, just because you figure more people around the world yeah. deserve the sort of treatment that, that Polynovo can deliver, which is, which is spectacular. The challenges, I think, for Polynovo are, are, are a couplefold. The first is that despite reasonably good sales growth, they're still not delivering any profitability. So you're still in that question of how long, how big. Uh, we talk about with plenty of other businesses. It's just, a, you know, how, how do you size the opportunity? Thinking about potential competitors, because there are others who are providing alternative burns treatments. Um, now, these guys think they've got the best solution. Every company does. That's why they're there. Um, and as Chris mentioned, really, really tough to get these things into hospitals. You think, I mean, again, nanosonics, polynova, these are products that are solving problems for people. And you say, well, why wouldn't you want them in my hospital? And the, and the, the hospital buyers are effectively saying, yeah, I hear you, but mate, I'm dealing with COVID right now. Can you come back in a year or so? And so, you know, they've got they've got competing pressures at the hospital level. No surprise, these guys are finding it difficult to find FaceTime and get meetings with these people and try and get the product sold in. So that remains the ongoing challenge for Polynova. And the pace at which they can do that, the degree to which they can do that, will determine the future. And it really is anybody's guess. And that makes it incredibly difficult. Now, in terms of the share price falling, I think it's worth thinking about sentiment when it comes to any of these sorts of businesses, because... When you think, okay, good announcement, share price is falling, why is that? Normally two reasons. The first is it wasn't as good as the market was already expecting. So sometimes you can have great profit growth on a business, but if it's not as much as the market thought would happen, then you're going to have the share price fall. Conversely, a terrible result, if just less terrible than you thought, we'll see the share price rise. And we'll see that right through the month of February and earnings season as mm. it rolls out. That's the first thing. Second thing, of course, is it assumes the previous price was right, and therefore the new price is wrong. And that's always a challenge for investors when you say, well, hang on, a good result should see, even if it was better than expectations, should see the share price go up. Again, that's true if the shares were priced appropriately in the past. Now, think about any business you want to choose. There is too much to pay for any business. Uh, if Woolies was $80 a share, no matter how good the result was, fair value would be lower than that. And that's just the simple reality of, of the market that we're in. So you've got to be a little bit careful when you say, hang on, why hasn't the share price stopped falling if it was already too high? Now, was it? Open question. I'll get to that in a second. But that's sometimes why you see share prices fall, even in the face of good results simply because investors just walk away and say, yeah, no, I bought that now. And that can really hurt you. We see plenty of those story stocks or momentum stocks trading on the ASX, particularly smaller companies, 
that really everyone gets excited about. Cannabis was a great example, what, 12 months ago? People couldn't get their hands on enough cannabis stocks. And all of a sudden, people lost interest, moved to lithium or blockchain or wherever else they'd gone to next. And those share prices of the cannabis stocks fell through the floor. Uh, again, was it really a different business 12 months later? Not really. Just expectations and sentiment and excitement ebbed away. I like Polynovo. I like what they're doing. I like the sales growth. I'm not ready to call it a buy just yet, I have to say. Right. Um, it, there is a bit of a distance between promising sales growth and sustainable levels of profitability that give me a basis for picking a, a market cap and a share price to pay. But I do like what it's doing. I love the mm. fact it's growing nicely. I'd absolutely have this on the watch list, as Chris said. It's one you want to grab at a, at a time when you feel like the risk reward is attractive enough. And everyone has a different level. For me, I'm going to want to see sustained sales growth and probably some level of profitability or at least a sustained level of gross profit that gives me a sense that at some future point when volume gets large enough, I can see how that flows down the net profit and starts to return money to shareholders. Yep, yep. And, and customers are willing to pay that price that uh, exactly. that actually produces a profit. All boils yep. back to business fundamentals, does that? Is there a customer really willing to pay the price <laughs> for you to yep. make money? I've had enough of them. That's, mate, that's exactly yeah. it. Spot on. Yep, yep. yep. Um, Scott Lee wants a view on Goodman Group, the, uh, the big property manager, uh, developer, uh, regarded as being the, the bluest of the blue chip in, um, in property companies. Uh, has it still got that mantle? It, I think it really does, Koshi. It's a $44 billion company, I should say, trading at 25 times earnings. Um, it, it, I think it is the, the bluest of the blue chips in property because it's done such a great job for a long time uh, in terms of developing a business model that is diverse, suitably diversified and seems to be able to do relatively well in most economic conditions. Now, it's a property company, so it's going to be cyclical uh, and you're going to have to just accept that's the reality of the business that they're in. They can't all of a sudden sell you know, SaaS software or, or mine lithium. Uh, so they're in, that, they're in that space. It's what they're going to do day in, day out. And they do a very good job of it. Um, diversified, as I said, industrial particularly, and it's been a really good time for them, uh, luck or, or good management or both, because bulky goods retail and industrial warehousing and, and distribution in particular have obviously been a huge part of the new online sales trend. We've talked about that before. We'll talk about it many times in the future. They've been the partner of choice for people like Amazon, for example. Uh, they partner with Brickworks uh, for their property yep. business, and there's plenty of others besides. So they're a really good quality business. They do a very, very good job. The challenge I have is paying 25 times earnings for them because, yes, they have a property development arm and that can be uh, not as cyclical as the broader business. But if you think about the valuation of the properties they own, they are valued on cap rates or capitalization rates. Now, without going into the boring algebra of property, basically the lower interest rates are, the higher the cap rate can be. Uh, and the, So the lower the cap rate can be, the higher the property value can be. As rates yeah. go up, the cap rate will also increase. That pushes down the property prices. Now, uh, overall, that doesn't mean necessarily there's a lower income because if the rental doesn't change, that's fine. But if you think about the value of the properties, the amount of money you're prepared to pay, and think about that 25 times earnings for it is otherwise, it's, it's a very, very good property business. But the rental yields on their assets are only going to be whatever the market can bear. And if that's 5 6 7%, if they're lucky, then that's kind of your maximum return outside property development benefits or the revaluation upwards of property. In fact, if the reverse happens and they start to devalue or, or revalue down the value of those properties and the rental stays the same, that's going to hurt earnings. So I do think it's a good business. I'd happily own it at a very good price. This is a very expensive price, which is great for current holders. I can't really see that PE being held or expanding over any long period of time. And I do wonder whether investors might struggle to get market, even matching gains. They'll probably lose the market, I would expect, over the next five years or so. 
again, just because of the way those those maths work yeah. out. Been great thus far. If you own it from a cheaper price, you might be happy to see through that, but I wouldn't be buying it at 25 times earnings. Okay. Would you still be holding it if you had it? Or if you bought it for money. cheap enough and you're happy with the income, maybe. Um, I think there are better opportunities out there. So this is one of those okay. challenging questions of, yep. is there a better place for your money? Yes, almost certainly. Would I rush out of it? I was happy to hold it. It was diversified as part of my portfolio. I liked the income stream. I bought it at a much cheaper price. I, I might be tempted to hold. But if your sole job is to maximise the value of your portfolio, there are almost certainly better ideas out there. Interesting. Uh, Chris? Uh, I'm a little bit more bullish uh, than Scott on this one. I hate to be that guy, but I've liked it since about $12. So uh, not going to jump nice. off just yet. Love the exposure to, to big box retail. Uh, they have you know great clients like Amazon, Australia Post, Kellogg's. Uh, they've got a number of car companies. So they're really servicing the big end of town. Uh, their properties are fantastic. They're close to urban centers. And the great thing about that is, is it's hard to replicate those locations. So there's big barriers to entry for anyone else coming to try and compete in this space and steal those clients. Uh, so I think they have a pretty good moat uh, it is pricey. I'm not going to disagree with uh, Scott on that. Uh, but I just think that the industrial boom has a long way to go. This big box retail theme has a long way to go. And there will be ebbs and flows undoubtedly. And certainly uh, some more astute investors out there might try and pick it up at a cheaper price. But I think uh, probably slightly different to Scott that in five years time, uh, this is one that will have served you well in your portfolio just because of the power of that theme that I was just talking about. So you'd be buying at these levels? Still would be a buyer at current okay. levels, yes. All right. Um, uh, Murray wants a view now, Chris, on my state, the uh, the Tasmanian Regional Bank. Uh, Murray's given a big rundown on, on the financials. I won't read it out because it takes a long time, but thank you for sending it through, Murray. Um, what do you think of my state, Chris? It's certainly growing, Koshi. They have 150,000 customers, and as far as I'm led to believe, 18,000 of those were added within the last 12 months. So it's growing nicely. It's a 62-year-old Tasmanian banker, as you mentioned, uh, market cap of about half a billion, and the PE, uh, just on the numbers I was looking at, it, is around 14 times. So it's not a particularly demanding PE. Uh, coming out of the company itself, they are trying to expand uh, into the mainland and they're really trying to expand into the uh, the mortgage space. That is an incredibly, as we know, incredibly competitive space uh, that, where the big four are really fighting hard amongst themselves. And now Macquarie is in there as well and doing quite well in terms of taking market share. Uh, it's not to say that there won't be customers available for, for my state, but uh, it's a pretty challenging operating environment for them to, to uh, try and leverage into. So... Uh, I couldn't be a buyer of this one. Uh, the share price hasn't really done anything uh, over the last uh, couple of years, unfortunately. Uh, and as much as that opportunity is there in front of them, I, you know, I just think it will be too difficult. Mm. Scott? Yeah, I, I agree with Chris's assessment on my state. By the way, I hope our viewers are enjoying different opinions, different views from us, because uh, mm. it's sensible, thoughtful, intelligent people can have very different views on different companies. And hopefully it's useful. Um, when it comes to my state, I'm slightly more positive. I won't go as far as say uh, I have a, a, a buy a bullish view on my state, but I do like what they're doing. I think Chris's point is absolutely right, though. If you're a, if you're a Tasmanian bank, you're doing pretty well locally, but you're probably thinking, gee, I'm really exposed here to, in particular, the Tasmanian economy and the Tasmanian property market, which has been wonderful, by the way, for quite a few years. Uh, plenty of money coming from the mainland and pushing Tasmanian prices up. Not great for Tasmanians, but great for the bank. The, op, the, the need to expand is smart. The need to diversify is smart. You want to get somewhere else. 
But as Chris says, moving into the mortgage market of all places, it's uh, it's kind of like, yeah, I want to I want to compete in some other market. Let me find the most difficult one I can, the most competitive one with the lowest margins. I'll, I'll run into that one and see what I can do. They probably should do it. It probably makes sense from from the current business because you want to be diversified. Should circumstances change, particularly in Tasmania, it's good for your customers, it's good for your shareholders to basically have a more solid bank with with, with fingers in different pies. So it makes a lot of sense for them to do that. Um, I also think the valuation is twelve and a half times earnings. Compare that with some of the bigger banks. Um, it's a pretty attractive opportunity to or option I should say compared to some of the others that are going through tougher times we know ANZ's margins are under pressure we've seen plenty of others and as we've said already Combank will, will be announcing tomorrow so I actually quite like my state as an alternative to the big banks that won't surprise you or your viewers Chris I'm not I'm not bullish any of the big banks from, from a market beating perspective from here so where my, my nuance here would be is if I owned one some of the big banks or I wanted to get more financial exposure I would probably look at my state as an alternative to one of the big banks. I think mm. you want to have diversification in your portfolio. I think it's cheaper than mm. most of the big banks. It seems to have done a better job thus far of being run, I won't say more conservatively, but conservatively enough that it's done a really good job over that 60 odd years you mentioned. Um, so I think it's I think it's a business that you know does absolutely justify consideration. It's small and, and remote in Tasmania, not, not remote for Tasmanians, but for the rest of us on the mainland, we don't see it here at feel it. So we don't necessarily you know, com uh, compare that. We look at Bendigo and Adelaide, for example, or Suncorp as an alternative. But if you're looking for a financial stock, if you if you're overweight, the big banks in particular, I think you do much much worse than selling some of that down. Maybe mm. buying some my state just to maybe balance your portfolio a little bit better. Uh, I think it's a well-run bank at a, at a pretty good price. But wow. I wouldn't buy it for, for market beating performance. So I wouldn't say right. buy it now. I would say buy any of the big four banks. I'm, I'm not a buy in any of those. But if you are looking for one in that space and you yeah. want an alternative, I think my state's a very good one. That's a great insight. All right, Scott, thank you for that. Uh, Rhino, uh, Chris wants a view on Hyperion Metals. Now, Rhino makes a good point. Is um, uh, This group has uh, uh, the technology, they have the rights to revolutionise the titanium slag space, and they've got expressions of interest there in a pilot program. Also, they've got um, a rare earths project in uh, Tennessee, um, which has just had some really good drilling results. And uh, Rhino says, is this being priced as a technology company or an undeveloped resource stock? Very interesting uh, question, Koshi. Uh, they're undoubtedly playing in a very exciting space, uh, trying to produce zero carbon uh, materials, titanium, like you say, for industries including space, aerospace, uh, electric vehicles and 3D printing. So it's an incredibly exciting space, a lot of hype around it. Uh, they have signed some uh, memorandums, a memorandum of understandings recently uh, with a couple of companies. There was one yesterday with a company in Spain uh, and they have uh, an agreement with Energy Fuels, which is a, a company listed on the uh, NYSE as well. Uh, also st strategically important, so uh, the US military has identified 35 metals that are cri of critical national importance to the US and titanium is one and currently America outsources all of its titanium needs and they're relying on the you know countries like China and I think Russia was in there as well. So uh, they're probably not too fond of that setup uh, and willing and keen to develop or have someone develop that uh, asset there in Tennessee. There's also great infrastructure apparently around this asset in Tennessee as well. So very exciting. But I, I, what I'll come back to with these type of names is they will be driven by announcements. They will be driven by further agreements with other companies, offtake agreements and things like that. Uh, so I can't invest in it until I see more evidence that it's moving in the right direction. So certainly a trading stock. 
Mind you, the share price has done nothing in the last six months. Could be a trading spot stock if it gets a little bit more exciting, but then I would need to see those fundamental drivers and those fundamental foundations in place uh, to want to add this one to a long-term portfolio. Yeah, um, interesting, Scott. So look, went from 50 cents to almost $1.50, and now has traded sideways for the last six months. It's a fascinating story, isn't it? The question is, you know, has it been successful for you or not? You've seen that one graph. You've either lost a third of your money or you've doubled your money and you're feeling pretty good. Or if you're really lucky, you bought it exactly at the right time and sold at the right time. I think Chris has done a spectacular job summarizing it. I can't add any more value to the business itself. He's done a wonderful job, particularly the titanium concerns and the and the US opportunity. Yeah. So that's a really, really positive thing. And if you wanted to find a business that in this space that was positively leveraged towards what the future is probably going to look like, very hard to go past something like this one. Okay. That being said, um, as Chris also said, it is absolutely announcements driven and you're going to find your returns. Here's the thing. If you're going to buy an exploration company, you're either going to try and get lucky slash right with your buying and selling and just happen to, to jag it, or you're going to hold it right through to commercialization, believing these, this company can deliver a large enough volume. And as we said earlier, at the right price and the right cost to deliver you profitable returns. Most people investing in this one aren't here for the, hey, I'll hold it until my, I'm, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm 65 years old, I'm, I've got one foot in the grave and I'm, you know, I've been banking the dividends for 40 years. This is one of those ones you're going to look at and say, well, maybe it might be higher in the future if things go well. And so you are literally betting on the announcement flow. Again, fine if you want to do that, but that's pure speculation. That can be fine. I don't say speculation is a dirty word. I say if that's what you're doing, then that's completely fine. Not what I do, not what I look at, generally speaking. Way too far away from any reasonable commercialization or output or profitability to try and try and put a, put a price on this one. It's just exploration is not a place you can use fundamentals to invest in. You can, if you want to, try and build a portfolio of exploration companies on the basis that if you get your theme roughly right, you might make some money. Um, but it's just it, it's just it's pure yeah. speculation, and that's fine. Uh, maybe trading, as Chris says, it's not one you can invest in at the current price. Yeah, a bit too hard. Uh, let's finish off with um, what's regarded as being one of the best around that retailers. Um, Scott Jack wants a view on La Visa, the fast fashion jewellery uh, retailer, 390 stores, mainly in the, the big shopping malls uh, here in Australia, New Zealand, Singapore and the like. Um, what do you think of La Visa? Man, these guys have done a great job, Kosh. Yep. They've, they've hit on just a rich vein of demand in the market. And I don't even think it was demand that was obvious. In you know, It's not like they've taken a whole lot of market share from a, a single competitor or a group of competitors. Uh, what we used to call costume jewellery is now more, more coolly called fast fashion jewellery. Uh, it, it's low price costume stuff. And that, that's fine. That's exactly right. right? They've, they've managed to find a model that consumers love because if you're in a fashion, why not grab a few pieces for, for cents on the dollar, wear them all, throw them away at the end of the year or give them the kids or, or do whatever, buy some more next year when the new fashions comes in. It's, it's a perfectly great business model. And to have almost 400 stores from a relative standing start is phenomenal. They've just done an amazing job of doing this. And I think like, I missed it the whole way through because I'm looking at this thing, well, where, where, is the, where is the competitive advantage? Where is the thing they're doing differently or better than anybody else? And it turns out what they did better than everybody else was find a niche and just exploit yep. that niche to its absolute fullest capacity in a really, really clever way. So that's been fantastic. What I do think though, is I wonder whether that reputation has maybe carried it further than it should be. If you look at the last couple of years, profits flattened off, it fell last year, but again, you can almost forgive any company for falling in profit in a previous year. It's not gonna be the obvious dot-com uh, e-commerce play. You're looking for established brands more for that stuff. So when the stores are unavailable to, to shoppers, um, we're not getting the passing trade of, hey, I'll go and try that on while I'm here. Um, you, they really suffered. That, that's that's not great. Even the last year, it's very hard to put a line through that workout where 
a normalized level of sales and profit might be. But they do seem to have flattened off over the last three or so years, and they're still trading at 53 times earnings. So if I look at that business and say, it's been a great business thus far, what I don't really know, and I, I don't think, you know, you can, you can have a, a speculation or a view on this one. Um, I, have a, I, I have a trouble trying to work out how big this market can be, how much growth is left, and what maturity looks like for LaVisa, given it's so fashion dependent. If it gets a few things wrong all of a sudden, frankly, it's probably yep. a buying opportunity rather, rather than the end of the business. Okay. But it's a really difficult one to try and analyze. So a 53 times earnings, just way too rich for me, too much built into the price. Maybe it absolutely blows away that expectation. Maybe it gets back to a post-COVID world and goes through the roof and continues. And if it does, good luck to it. I just can't look at the fundamentals of the business or even the market itself and try and guesstimate how big it might be and where sure. maturity might be or where there's enough upside left. Okay. 53 times earnings, it's probably got to double in size before you start to make it a decent price to pay. Okay. Uh, just quickly, Chris Labisa. I would just say it pleases me greatly that someone as intelligent as Scott struggles to value this one as well because I had the same problem. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, their, their store rollout, that's where they're getting most of their growth from, but they're probably going to struggle because of COVID. Yeah. Uh, of course, supply chain shouldn't be too bad because most of it's air freight rather than sea freight, but it is expensive. It's going to have some headwinds into reporting season. Uh, and like Scott, I just can't find a way to buy in this one either, uh, but I do recognize that it has been a fantastic performer. Yeah. Chris Conway from Marcus today. Always a pleasure to have you on. Likewise, Scott Phillips from Motley Fool. Great discussion today and all of us thank you for it. Go on, you guys. Thanks, gents. Thank you, gents. Um, let's uh, recap the final five stocks. Polynova, a no from both Chris and Scott. Love the business. On their watch list, hopefully it will succeed. Uh, Goodman Group, a yes from Chris and no from Scott. Uh, my state, a no from both, although Scott's saying if you're overweight big four banks, um, to, to lighten there and invest in my state could be a good strategy. Hyperion Metals, a no, a LaVisa, a no as well. Uh, if you've got any stocks you want us to cover, put them in an email, thecall at ausbiz.com.au or tweet us using the at TV handle. All the stocks in the calls portfolio at ausbiz.co forward slash portfolio. 